Let's open our Bibles to the book of Hebrews this morning. Our text for this morning is Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 28. Hebrews 7, verses 23 through 28. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be a blue hardback one near you underneath a chair in the rack, and you'll find our passage, if you're using one of those blue Bibles, beginning on page 1004. We're in week three of our five-week Advent series where we are working through portions of the book of Hebrews, mainly where the author is highlighting the precious reality of our Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Remember that the author is writing to Christians who have experienced all sorts of trials from loss of community status, imprisonment, theft. They've apparently lost friendships and possibly even their family. It seems the only loss that some of them haven't experienced yet is their own life. And now they are tempted to go back to Judaism, to go back to the old covenant where in their minds it was just so much easier. And we can empathize with them. We've seen this throughout the weeks, wishing to go back sometimes to an earlier time of our lives, maybe before we'd made those bad decisions or said that thing that we regret even to this day or missed that opportunity to seize that would have made our lives so much better. And what we learn from Hebrews is that if we let that kind of nostalgia take root, we too might be tempted to decide that following Jesus is just too hard. It's just not worth it. And the author is writing to encourage these weary saints, and he's writing to us to hold fast to Jesus. And we've seen him do this in unexpected ways. Our first sermon, we saw how he pointed to the main issue in this church being not their suffering, but rather their lack of maturity. They needed to grow up in their faith in Jesus, not throw their faith in Jesus away. And then last week, we saw how the author dove deep into a relatively obscure Old Testament figure named Melchizedek. And he did this to show that not only was Jesus a genuine priest, but he was actually the long-foretold high priest from the Old Testament. And he didn't do this to dazzle them with some clever argument to show off his theological pedigree. Rather, he was showing them that the Old Covenant... The old life that they were considering going back to was no life at all. In fact, the idea that they were going to put their hope in, the Old Testament rules and laws and priesthood, had always pointed beyond itself to Jesus, the great high priest who had come Basically, he's using the argument that the emperor has no clothes. There's no hope there. He's exposing the emptiness of their past and the hopelessness of trying to go back to it if they leave Jesus. You see, the, see friends, they wanted certainty. They wanted stability. They wanted something permanent. And in their mind, permanence looked like going back to the old temple sacrifices, to go back to the law, back to the old covenant rituals. They didn't yet see that what they thought was permanent was but a shadow of the eternal. What they saw with their eyes was but a temporary reality. What they knew in their hearts through Jesus, that was permanent. 
And Jesus was actually all that they needed to meet their desire for stability. So with that in mind, let's read Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 28. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, a few years ago, the Lord opened the eyes of our family. We'd lived in darkness for so long. We'd believed the testimony of false teachers, and we trusted in man and not the Lord to provide what we needed. The Godfreys used to put up artificial Christmas trees every year. We did. <laughs> I think that might be a record of the first amen. That's right. The Lord graciously caused us to see the errors of our ways. He helped us to realize the glory of having a real tree. Now, I understand real is a relative term. After all, artificial trees claim to be real. But are they, like, really? I mean, but, but we know this, right? So, so artificial tree apologists here know that having a real tree brings challenges. It's a recurring expense every year. It requires time and effort to go and find. And then the most challenging aspect is that it requires some measure of family agreement on which tree. Then you have to get it home, you have to set it up, you have to feed and water it and decorate it. All of this takes time. The artificial tree does away with some of these issues. I mean, now many of them come with the lights already on them. So all you have to do is plug in the fake tree and an almost instant Christmas appears. <laughs> Perhaps the biggest trouble, at least in our home, in having a live tree, are the needles. There is a daily or somewhat daily ritual of this tree shedding its needles and the need to clean up the needles. In fact, getting the tree into the house and situated in the right place comes along with a trail of needles from where you took the tree. They're all over the place, and you're going to find them in the strangest places for the next eight months. But the needles on the floor point to the temporariness of the tree. In a sense, from the time the tree is up, we are reminded of its temporariness every day in the falling needles. 
From the time, at least in our family, we put it up, we know it's coming down. In one sense, the Christmas tree reminds us that we live in a world of temporary pleasures, a place of transience, an environment of constant change. Yet each of us feels a hunger for something that won't fail, that won't break, that won't shut down, that won't leave. Yet everywhere we look, we struggle to find anything permanent. Marriages get hard, children rebel, parents die, warranties expire, dreams are crushed, jobs are lost, friendships get weird, and our bodies break down. All, of this, all these things can leave us asking, is anything actually certain? Is there anyone who can really be trusted? Well, last week, we leaned in to see how Melchizedek was the priestly line that Jesus descended from, that he was the guarantee, Jesus, the better of a better hope and a better covenant. The old, test, the old covenant, real as it was, a gift as it was, was never the final solution. The final solution to our problem of sin was not found in the blood of animal sacrifices, but the blood and bulls of goats pointed forward to a final sacrifice that would do away with any need for sacrifices again. This is the new covenant instituted and given by Jesus, who is the perfect high priest, and as we see in our text, the permanent high priest. He's actually the answer to our deep longings for stability and security. And our author shows that in our text this morning by showing the weakness of the temporary priesthood with the perfection of a permanent priesthood. Those are going to be our two big categories today. So first, let's look at the weakness of a temporary priesthood. The author gives us three broad categories where the priesthood of the old covenant was weak. First, the priests were numerous. In the very first line of our text, the former priests were many in number. The author draws out that the priests who came before Jesus were many in number. It's clear that he means high priests here. That's been the whole argument of, of Hebrews 7. Now, there wasn't, any, there wasn't more than one high priest appointed at any given time, but there were multiple high priests between the time of Aaron and the days of these Christians. In fact, if you remember a few weeks back, we talked about how this letter was written likely in the mid-60s after Jesus' death, not 1960s or even the 960s, but like the first 60s, between 60 and 70 A.D. And in the year 70 A.D., the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, brought to the ground. But through the ancient historian Josephus, Jewish historian Josephus, we actually have a record of 83 high priests who officiated from Aaron to the fall of the temple in 70 AD. The high priests were many in number. The plurality of the priests actually revealed its weakness. The high priests were perpetually unable to bring ultimate satisfaction to God's law. Some obeyed and followed the law. Some feared the Lord and served the people, yet none of them fulfilled the law. None of them lasted. None of them are still with us. Why? Well, that's the second category of weakness that our author shows us from a temporary priesthood. The second weakness is that the priests died. The priests died. So 
literally, I came across one of the best lines I have ever read in a biblical commentary this week on verse 23. So look at verse 23 again. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. One commentator explains, the priests were mortal men, subject to death, and they died. That's exactly what he's saying. Like, that is, that's it. They were mortal men, and they died. That's the problem with the former high priests. And it's the problem that these believers are going to face again if they try to go back to the old covenant. They would go back to another high priest who would die, and then another high priest who would die. They wanted permanent, and they were going to run to the temporary. They wanted eternal, but they're running back to the momentary. There's another dimension of the temporariness of the old covenant priesthood that is brought to light. The fact that with every death of a high priest, the priesthood didn't die with them. There was still a need. There was still a priesthood. The people were still guilty of sin. They still needed one appointed by God who would carry out the duties of a high priest. The high priest died over and over and over again, but the office of priesthood continued. The need for sacrifices continued. The need for someone to stand as the people's representative before God remained. The need for one to represent God to his people still existed even with the death of every high priest. The reality of burying high priest after high priest pointed to the need of something different in order to fully and finally meet the need that God's people had. In fact, that the world had, that you and I have. Yet there's a third and more glaring weakness, probably the most glaring weakness of a temporary priesthood that shows up actually toward the end of our text in verse 27. As the author is highlighting Jesus, he says, He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. This is the greatest weakness of a temporary priest. Not only would he die, he was corrupted from the start. The way the author argues that Jesus is better is because he didn't have to do what the former priests did. And in saying that, he exposes a reality inherent to the old covenant high priest. Namely, every one of them, from Aaron forward, were sinners. They were not perfect. They were broken. They might have been sons of Aaron, They were sons of their first father, Adam, wicked by nature and by choice. They were not good in the biblical sense of being free from sin. A third weakness of a temporary priesthood is that the priests were sinners. What the author is showing us is that their sin prevented them from entering the presence of God without first offering a sacrifice for themselves, for their own sin. Before they could be a part of any solution, they had to face the reality that they were part of the problem. You see, the author shows that the temporary priesthood was temporary because every high priest appointed to serve needed to constantly deal with his own imperfections, 
with his own righteousness, his own unholiness, his own stain of sin. The sacrifices he offered first were the ones that paid the penalty for his sin before he ever turned to the penalty of the people. And there's, there's the punch of that argument. The former priests would never be free of that need. They would always have to offer sacrifices for themselves. It's ironic that that's the only permanent reality of this temporary priesthood. They would always have to offer the sacrifices for their own guilt before they could do anything for anybody else. The only thing permanent about the temporary high priest was his inability and weakness. This is why the author of Hebrews wants these people to see that that this hope that they're so desperate to find in the midst of pain, this idea of running away, it's never going to be found in going to a temporary priest who himself is weakened with sin. The security that they wanted, they already had in Jesus. The stability they wanted, they already had in their great high priest because he was not weak like the temporary high priests of the old covenant. And to help these weary, broken-hearted, suffering saints, the author holds up the priesthood of Jesus in all of its brilliance and glory and permanence. So for the rest of our time, let's listen in. Let's turn our attention to the perfection of a permanent priesthood. And the author gives us at least four aspects of Jesus' perfect aspects of Jesus' priesthood. So as I've already kind of shown you, the office of high priest continued even when the priest died. But what if there was a priest to be found who wasn't bound by mortality? What if there was a priest who could finish the job and then remain as a priest for all eternity? What might that mean? What security for these Christians might there be in that wonderful possibility? Church, it's not a possibility, a dream, or a fantasy because our Lord Jesus is eternal. He is not bound by mortality, and he will never die. Yes, he died on the cross, but the point the author is making here is that Jesus' priesthood is permanent because he rose from the grave. The first perfection of our permanent priesthood is that our high priest cannot, will not, will never die. This is what makes Jesus different from every high priest before him. Look at verse 24. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. You see, the perfection of a permanent priesthood is in the life of the high priest who died once for sin but rose from the dead never to die again. We long for a permanence in a world where everything changes. And beloved, here we have it in our high priest, Jesus. We want someone who will love us without fail, who will stay with us at our worst, who will promise to never leave us nor forsake us and actually keep his word. And this is who we have in Jesus, our high priest. This is our high priest. Why would we ever want to run for a temporary fix? The guarantee of his permanent priesthood is in our permanent priest and his unending life. But there's another perfection there we see 
in verse 25, the second perfection of a permanent priesthood is our complete salvation. So the author's building on Jesus' unending life. You can, you can almost hear him in a crescendo as, he, as he's writing the words, perhaps his pen, well, not pen, I guess a quill, scratching feverishly. He's building on Jesus' unending life, his permanent occupation of the role of high priest as the foundation of what he accomplishes us in verse 25. He says, consequently, or as a result of, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. There's two realities at play in this sentence. First, the reality of drawing near to God through Jesus. What he means by this is that Jesus' salvation is for those who seek to draw near to God through Jesus. This idea of drawing near is a picture of entering into the presence. So those who attempt to draw near to God through believing in Jesus are the ones who benefit from his priesthood. What he is also saying, without explicitly saying it, is that there is no salvation for those who try to draw near to God apart from Jesus. Remember the audience. Remember who he's writing to. There were some who were hoping that they could get into heaven by a side entrance that didn't include trusting Jesus. They wanted to go back to the old covenant and hope that that would still get them welcomed into God's presence. And that hope was empty. For there is no way to draw near to God other than through the high priest he has given. I said this last week, but it bears repeating. There's no back door to heaven. You cannot draw near to God through means that he has not given. But the other side of that coin, the other, main, the other heavy reality in this sentence is that the salvation Jesus brings is complete. He is able to save to the uttermost. It's complete salvation. That's what that expression is getting at. Let me give you just a few definitions for the word that the author uses that we translate uttermost. Perfect, complete, through all time. Unlimited duration of time with a particular focus upon the future. One grammar expert Translating it always, forever, forever, and ever, eternally. Because Jesus lives forever, your salvation in and through him is never in question. He will not lose his grip on you. He cannot fail you. His perfection means your complete salvation. I mean, there's something so beautiful in the time language that the author is using throughout these verses. And I find it just particularly comforting even in my own heart because some of us struggle with what we've done in the past or what has been done to us. We struggle with sins we have done and sins committed against us. But here we are reminded that Jesus says to the uttermost, there is no dark corner of your past that he's going to find out about and toss you away. He won't do it. 
There's no deed that you have done that bars you from heaven. Jesus knows every failure you have ever had, ever had, every dark and evil thing that you have done, said, and even thought, and still he saves all who come to him in faith to the uttermost. His salvation is perfect, which is why it's permanent. Others have a struggle with the future, the unknown. The days ahead trouble us far more than the days behind. Yet the remedy is the same. Jesus, who is eternal and never dies, will not fail you on any future day. There is no situation coming that's going to remove his permanent priesthood. And so if you are in Christ, there is no day coming where he will cease to be your perfect and complete Savior. Now don't Don't be confused and think that this is some sort of promise of no pain. I mean, we know from the existence of this entire sermon letter that Christians will deal with trials, difficulties, persecution, and suffering of all types. But Christians do not face that suffering without hope because we get heaven. Jesus has guaranteed it. So whatever days lie ahead of us, he is still able to save to the uttermost all who draw near to God through him. So believer, whether you are troubled by your past or anxious about your future or both, Jesus is still the high priest you need to find permanence in a world of temporary pleasure and temporary pain because he alone can save to the uttermost. And then the author describes actually how Jesus accomplished this complete salvation for his people. The third perfection of Christ's permanent priesthood is his intercession. Look again at verse, or the last phrase of verse 25 with me again. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. So again, he, he points to permanence. Did you hear the permanent language there? Jesus always lives. Can you see how the author, he's ramping it up. He keeps using the eternal nature of Jesus to build this glorious picture that Jesus continues forever, that he saves to the uttermost, that he always lives. He is pointing to and building on Jesus' eternal permanence so that every new treasure he pulls out of his treasure chest just shines with an even greater intensity because of the eternal nature of our priest. It is fantastic news to have a high priest who intercedes for us, but it is infinitely greater to have an eternal, undying, perfect high priest who intercedes for us because failure is what? Impossible. But what what does it mean that Jesus makes intercession? Or more simply, what, what does it mean that he intercedes for us? Well, part of the answer is actually laid out in the first part of the verse where the author speaks of drawing near to God. In order for us to draw near to God, we need an intercessor, one who will plead for us, one who will appeal to God on our behalf. But why do we need that? I mean, can't we just walk in? Why do we need someone to plead for us? Why do we need someone to appeal to God that we could come into his presence? Because of who we are? Because of what we've done. 
Contrary to what we are told by every wind of culture in our world, it isn't God who is blessed by our presence. It is we who are blessed to enter his presence. At the heart of the Christian gospel is the reality that the treasure and hope for eternity is to be welcomed into God's presence for all eternity. To enjoy heaven with him in unending pleasure and joy. This is our reward. And yet God does not owe us this reward just because we exist. By nature, many of us assume that God has to welcome us. Or he should welcome us. He has to open his his courts to us. If he is actually good, then he must certainly welcome everyone into his courts and in his presence. We might, if we're honest, even think he actually owes us heaven. But actually, the good news of the gospel corrects that notion. Our sin is a hindrance to approaching God. It's not that he is lucky to have us. It's that we have disobeyed him. And the Christian gospel reveals the lies of our culture that would say, he has to let us into his presence. He owes it to us because of who we are. The gospel actually tells us that we have sinned, that we have rebelled in our hearts and our minds, our wills and our actions, and that we are stained with the guilt of disobedience, such that to approach God with the stain of sin would only mean rejection from his presence and wrath. Just as God was perfectly righteous when he cast out Adam and Eve from his presence and put them out of the Garden of Eden, we are not welcomed into God's presence on the basis of our own merit, on our own dime. We cannot purchase admission to his courts because the price would be our death. That is, unless there is one who would plead our cause, unless there's one who has paid the debt, Unless there is one who intercedes for us and opens wide the gates of heaven where the Lord dwells, that the floods of heavenly love wash over us like a glory tsunami. That's what Jesus did. This is what Jesus has done, and he does. He intercedes for us that we might return to the Lord who made us and draw near, not groveling, hoping to to get some coin of grace tossed our way from a rich king, but trembling as we approach the throne like the prodigal who comes home to his father who receives him in welcomed embrace. That's what he's done for us. We are brought into paradise through Jesus making intercession for us. In his intercession, we are told he always lives. It's never going to run dry. Jesus' intercession is the application of his work. Listen to how one theologian helpfully stated this. He said this, For men to be saved, it was not sufficient that by his suffering, death, and holiness, he merited salvation, he being Jesus. But it is also necessary that by means of his intercession, He would apply salvation and make them actual partakers of it. Do you see the difference? Jesus earned the salvation through what his merits, his perfect righteousness, his substitutionary death. He applies it to his people through his intercession. Jesus' glorious life 
death and resurrection is the saving work he came to do. But it is Jesus interceding for us as our great high priest that applies his righteous life and substitutionary death in our place to us when we trust in him. And the glorious news, friends, hear this, is that he's willing to intercede for anyone who comes to him in faith. Any sinner who turns from their sin and trusts in Christ gets this permanent, perfect priest interceding for them for all eternity. We are welcomed into God's presence, drawing near to God because the Son pleads our cause. Have you come to this great high priest? Have you trusted him to plead your cause on the merits and basis of his sacrifice? Because we need his sacrifice in our place. We need a high priest who has not only the ability, but the willingness to pay our debt. Which is the fourth perfection of his permanent priesthood. The fourth perfection of this priesthood is our perfect high priest. Because the temporary priests were sinners and they died, there is an inherent deficiency to their work. They could never fully finish the work as the author of Hebrews has showed us last week. He points out that they were never actually destined or designed to do so. The final priestly work of redemption was reserved for the eternal high priest who came in the line of Melchizedek and listened to the accolades of our great high priest. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. What a resume. No one here has got that, but Jesus does. He is holy. Jesus was, was and is completely perfect and distinct from any fallen nature or corruption. He is the fulfillment of the repeated command from God in Leviticus, Be holy, for I am holy. Jesus, the perfect Son of God, can stare at that impossible command and say, Done, I am holy as you are holy. The author of Hebrews set this up in the opening verses of his sermon, Hebrews 1.3, where he wrote, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He's innocent. No charges of sin can stick to Jesus. Even the accusations for which he crucified were false. He did not blaspheme when he revealed who he was, nor was it wrong for them to call him king of the Jews. And he did not lead any political insurrection or rebellion. No, dear friends, he's the only person who can really say with no guile, I'm innocent. I didn't do anything ever wrong. There is no guilt to be found in Jesus, only perfection. He is unstained. I mean, we live in a world where the stain of sin comes from us and it sticks to us. Like a human population of the Peanuts character pig pen. We're constantly radiating filth. But not Jesus. Wherever we move, whatever we touch is polluted with the stain of sin, but not Jesus, not our high priest. He navigated this world of sinful filth and no stain landed upon him. And stuck to him. His perfection was complete. He is separated from sinners. Now that doesn't mean that he was not surrounded by sinners. That's false. From his conception in the womb to his ascension, Jesus was surrounded by sinners. 
in Mary's womb and when she swaddled and held our Lord Jesus. When Joseph kissed the forehead of his son, Jesus was surrounded by sin. Yet because he was the eternal son of God, the word made flesh, he was not corrupted by that sin. You see, Jesus was at both times in the world, yet not of the world. He was with sinners, yet separated from them in his glorious perfection. He is exalted above the heavens. When Jesus ascended after he rose from the dead, he took up his rightful place at God's right hand. Again, the author sets the stage for what he's saying now in the opening words of this sermon in the same verse, Hebrews 1.3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Our Lord has taken up his rightful place of exaltation above the heavens at the right hand of the Father. Where, what is he doing, beloved? He's interceding for us. How great is our priest? And the author tells us in verse 26 that it was fitting that we would have such a high priest. The word fitting carries the weight of rightness. That is, it is right that we would have a high priest like Jesus. Why? Why is it right? Why is it fitting? Because he's everything that we aren't. Everything that we were meant to be. And he is the one like us in flesh, but unlike us in perfection. And through his work as our priest, his perfection is applied to us. He is the fitting right high priest. And how did he secure it for us? How did he secure this righteousness that we enjoy? How did he secure this reality, this debt of guilt that has been removed from us and sin paid? Well, our high priest is also our perfect sacrifice. And we saw how the temporary old covenant priesthood back in the beginning of our time in this text was weak because the one who was sacrificing was sinful. He needed to offer first sacrifices for himself before he could offer sacrifices for the people. But our great and our perfect high priest has no such need. Verse 27, he has no need like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Again, we see how the author points to the permanent reality of Jesus as our high priest. He sacrificed himself once for all. That's time language again. Jesus died at one time, but his sacrifice counts for all eternity. The security of his own priesthood, its permanence, is secured by his own perfect sacrifice. There's no need for more offerings. He's paid for every sin for those who trust in him. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. The permanence of Jesus is the security that these weary Christians so desperately needed in the midst of their temporary pain. No temporary priest would do. They could not compare with the Lord Jesus, our great high priest, because they're temporary. He is forever. He's actually what we need when we're weary and tempted to run away. His eternal nature is the final argument that the author uses to comfort troubled hearts. It's run throughout all of these verses. Verse 28, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Beloved, the priesthood of Jesus is permanent because he is. His priesthood is perfect because he is perfect. 
And beloved, our hope is fixed, permanent, unchanging, unfailing, secure, and eternal because our hope is a person and his name is Jesus. Let's pray.